Turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 20. And in this passage, we see Paul is concerned about the Philippians. He's afraid that they're going to be discouraged by the fact that he's in jail. Or maybe he knows that they're discouraged by that. And so he sees that and he recognizes the temptations that come with persecution, especially including the persecution of a beloved church leader like himself. But what he does is he reminds them of his main goal. And if you know Paul, you read through Acts, you read through his letters, the epistles as they're called, you know that his main goal is that the church would be established. His main work that he's been given by Jesus himself is to spread the word of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so what he does is he reminds them of his main work, he reminds them of the task that Jesus has given him, and then he begins to explain to them how even his imprisonment, even the fact that he's in jail, is being used by God to accomplish that goal. God's good plan of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles by Paul. So that's a sweet thing. Let's study it now together and let's read Philippians 1, 12 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren... Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, 
whether by life or by death. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you're discouraged, it can lead to a lot of different sins. Discouragement comes with various temptations. Because discouragement is ultimately connected to faithlessness. Discouragement, you may not want to hear. I certainly don't want to hear when I'm discouraged. But discouragement is generally sinful itself. Now, that might seem like the least helpful thing to hear when you're discouraged. Thanks, Pastor. You've made me feel ever so much better now. I am encouraged. But really, we have to start with that basis. We have to start understanding that it's a problem for us to live in discouragement, not because of the claims of people like the preachers you see on TV who are insane and don't know their Bible at all and think that Christianity just leads from one good thing and happy thing and pleasant thing to the next, because that's precisely the opposite of what Paul is dealing with here, right? Paul is in prison. Never something that you hear on the Health and Wealth Gospel Network, right? Okay, and yet, he is intent that the Philippians not be discouraged. He is not willing that the Philippians should see him in prison and then have their faces downcast and be like, well, this is pretty miserable. He knows that discouragement is bad for them. He knows that it leads to other sin. It is connected to fear, right? If you're discouraged, it literally means you're lacking courage, right? You're lacking that that strength of ability, that willingness to go forward, to continue taking steps. When you get discouraged, it's like everything slows down, and you're like, what's the point of continuing This walk, it's hard. It's clearly too hard. It's not accomplishing anything. What's on the next, well, you know, what's over the next hill? It's it's not like uh, that song, The Bear Went Over the Mountain to see what he could see. You're like, I don't want to see what's on the other side of the mountain. That's when you're discouraged, right? You're afraid to get to the top and even see what you're going to face on the other side. If you think of people who have been lost in the wilderness and they keep thinking just over the next hill and you get over the next hill and there's a higher hill, you know, you got to go down through the valley and up at the other side and it's, 
you know what, I'm not sure I want to climb this next one because I'm afraid, even though I want it to be just on the ne- next, over the next hill, that we'll get out. Instead, I'm afraid, I'm discouraged. I'm afraid that it's not going to work out for good. Which, of course, is the promise of God to us that his plan is a plan of hope. It's a plan for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So, fear connects with discouragement. Fear that God's promises are not going to be kept. That he is not keeping his good plan. Doubt. Doubt about whether all of these, not just whether his promises are true, doubt not just about whether he'll keep them, but doubt about whether it's all worth it. Doubt about whether the gospel is true. Because if the gospel's true, why would I be feeling like this? Like I said, it is connected to, it is a type of, discouragement is in, is in some ways just a type of faithlessness. But it can lead to being more faithless. Because when you're afraid and discouraged, when you're beginning to doubt, then when there's an action to take, if, you're, if you don't have the energy for it, if you're discouraged, you don't have the courage to take that action, you don't have, and instead you're afraid and you don't take action, that's being faithless. So discouragement can lead into further faithlessness. Ultimately, you think of the parable of the sower. You kids remember the parable of the sower? What kind of sowing are we talking about? When we talk about the parable of the sower, maybe you've heard it called the parable of the seeds. And you remember that the one who's planting the seeds spreads them all over the place and some of them get on good soil and some of them get in bad soil. The seeds that are that spring up but are choked by the thorns and thistles, by the worries and cares of this world. Discouragement can lead people who have sprung up apparently into faith towards bearing good fruit to give up. To give up on the work that God has called them to, to give up to turn away from Jesus Christ. Paul is concerned for the church. He's concerned for the people in the church in Philippi. He does not want them to be discouraged. He does not want to see discouragement lead to worse consequences in that body. You imagine if the whole church in Philippi grows discouraged, what's going to happen? 
to the church in Philippi. Is it going to be good for the church in Philippi? No. And so he seeks to encourage them by saying, prison is great. And we're just thinking, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, he doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say prison is great. He doesn't say jail itself is great. But he says that the fact that he has been arrested is actually turning out, what does he say? For the greater progress of the gospel. His circumstances have turned out, verse 12, for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, when he starts with that, of course, we're already in verse 12, right? You think back to earlier in the book, in the chapter, not that much to think about, right? Not too many verses, just just 11 verses earlier. You know how he has uh, started them thinking down this path of remembering remembering the work that he did of proclaiming the gospel to them, remembering the fruit, the grace, their commitment to that work, their commitment to that same desire that he has. They are partakers of grace with him. What? In the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he's he's set before them the work. He's reminded them of the shared goal, the vision that they have together for the future, for God's work to go forth in power. And then he gets here and he goes, so now, about the fact that I'm in jail, you do need to see that it is pushing forward the work. It is pushing forward the gospel. It is turning out for These circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that's what he he starts with because he's already reminded them of the fact that their goal, their, their unity is around that good news. How has it turned out? for the greater progress of the gospel? Well, he he lists a number of different things and the consequences, the ramifications. First thing he says is that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. My imprisonment in Christ, in the cause of Christ, has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So what does that mean? Well, you've got to think about the, the, um, the context here. He's, we're not talking about a modern prison system that we have in America, right? Modern might be putting it too positively. I don't know. Uh, the prison system today is pretty messed up. The prison system then, then might have been even more messed up. But one thing 
remains the same, and that is whenever you find out that someone's in prison, you get a little bit curious, don't you? Don't you want to know why? Even even the guards want to know why they're guarding this guy, Paul. And what they all know now is they're guarding Paul because he talks about this guy named Jesus. Okay? And immediately the next question becomes, (coughs) okay, well, so who's this Jesus dude? (laughs) Right? Isn't that going to be what your next question is? So all of the Praetorian Guard and everyone else who knows about the fact that Paul's in jail and is, is seeing him in prison, right? They all know why he's in jail. And it's because he has been imprisoned in Christ. He's been imprisoned in the cause of Christ. The moment that they hear that, you got to wonder, what's so bad about this Christ character? Why does, it, why does it require Paul to end up in jail? And I think we as Christians often end up thinking that way. thinking like non-Christians about the persecution. That's what Paul is trying to stop us, stop the Philippians from doing. Stop us from thinking that way. What's so problematic about Christ? Why does it end up in persecution? Why does it end up in imprisonment? Surely we've gotten something wrong here. If it's ending up this way, The way Calvin puts this is, he says, we allow Christ crucified to be preached to us. Yeah, I mean, we allow that. But when he appears in connection with his cross, now what would that mean? The cross is the suffering that he went through. So, when he appears in connection with the suffering of the gospel, when he appears in connection with his cross, then, as though we were thunderstruck at the novelty of it, what? Persecution? We either avoid him or hold him in abhorrence. Abhorrence, kids, is the face that you make at broccoli. When your mom is trying, have you seen your little siblings maybe do this? They're feeding them their least favorite food, and the head shakes, and the screaming, and the no, anything but that looks that they make, that you make sometimes. They're like, "Mm, I can't take another bite. Look that you do. That's abhorrence. And what 
Calvin is saying here is that when we are reminded of the fact that the gospel comes with suffering, the gospel comes with persecution, it comes with the cross itself, that Jesus died on the cross, suffered on the cross, that then we abhor the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold him, Christ, in abhorrence. And that, that, not merely in our own persons, but also in the persons of those who deliver to us the gospel. So here is what you see. This is what Calvin, is when he writes this, he's writing on the verse 12 here in Philippians. So he's, he's saying, look, you don't even have to be the one suffering to be faced with this temptation to turn aside from the gospel in revulsion, to, to be like, oh no, I, you know what, this just, it can't be, it sh- it's, there's something wrong, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this painful, it shouldn't be this miserable. The moment that we see it, even in somebody who's preaching to us the gospel, that can be enough to turn us away. You don't even have to be the one suffering it yourself. When you see someone who preaches the gospel and then suffers for it, and you think, well, he's doing holy work. He's doing good work. I'm not even doing that. I don't have what it takes to suffer for the gospel. And this is precisely the discouragement that Paul is seeking to head off at the pass with us, with the Philippians, because he is the one who preached the gospel to the Philippians, and now they know, they see him in jail, and they're, they're going to be tempted <clears throat> just this way. Paul has become notorious. But as Paul became notorious, all the Praetorian Guard, knowing, hey, there's something weird about this guy that we're guarding. He's not just another thief or another murderer. He's in jail for this message that he tells everybody. Even as Paul becomes notorious, what happens is that the name of Jesus Christ becomes more known. And Paul is insistent that this is a good thing. It's a good thing. Why? Well, partly because it is through our suffering that we testify to the truth and power, the beauty, the goodness, the love of The cross, the gospel message, is made more powerful in our suffering. When we are united with Christ in his suffering, and remember, that's the cross. Then we make his name more great. 
to the watching world. Why? Well, because they realize here is something worth suffering for. Here is something worth dying for. In all of this meaningless world, Heidi and I went kayaking yesterday, and <clears throat> it was a hot day. It was a perfect day for kayaking, and apparently everybody else in Cincinnati thought that as well because there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and many more hundreds of people on the river. And, and so... This six-mile trip down the river by kayak was basically like a six-mile frat party. I had no idea what we were getting in for. <clears throat> it, was, it was amazing. I've never been to such a big frat party. I've never seen so much beer or so many people smoking weed. I've never seen, I mean, it was mind-boggling, really. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because the, the emptiness and meaninglessness of the life that most people lead, the the, the the best thing they have to live for is the weekend where then they're still left going, how do we deaden the pain further? How do we forget more how meaningless life is? You see, that's mile after mile after mile what we saw. Punctuated here and there by Families who are out having a nice time amongst the mayhem. <laughs> and, you, and you realize what? Well, the first thing that you realize is, hey, you know what? Most of these people are missing is kids. Really, most of these these people would be a lot happier with kids instead of dogs. So why bring up kids? Well, because <clears throat> here we are, a family or a church with families that have kids, right? And it's easy to grow discouraged with the work that you've been given of raising, training, feeding, educating, disciplining kids. Kids, did you know that sometimes your parents walk out of the room, put their head down, shake their head, and think, what have I gotten into? Why did we have kids in the first place? Did you know that? No, they don't really. But they but they do they do get discouraged 
when they're thinking, how many times do I have to tell them the same stupid thing? Why won't they just remember it? Why won't they just do it? And so we get discouraged. So kids, Paul doesn't want the people in Philippi to be discouraged. Do you want your parents to be discouraged? No. You know how you can encourage your parents? By listening to them. It's really easy to encourage your parents. You say, well, you make it sound like it's easy to obey, Pastor. Pray to God for help to obey. And he will help you obey. It's so easy to get discouraged in any of the work that God has called us to, isn't it? But then you look around and you realize how wonderful that work is. How meaningful that work is. How glorious it is. How it declares the future that God has called us to. Having kids is an act of faith. You have to remember that when you're doing the work of it. If you remember that, then you won't be discouraged. You think, hey, you know what? Those apostles, they were just like kids. (laughs) How many times did Jesus have to tell them, the first shall be last, the last shall be first? How many times did Jesus have to tell them, Quit bickering amongst yourselves about who's the greatest. How many times do you have to say, do you still not understand? Why do you not understand yet? What? That I must go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the Jews and the chief priests, be crucified but that I will rise again on the third day. And so when you think about life today and you think about how easily discouraged we are, you think, how how do we declare the gospel to a sinful, fallen world today One of the ways is by living as though the gospel is true. Living as though there is a hope and a future. Living as though fruitfulness is good. That God, God who made the world knew what he was doing and what he was saying when he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And that He gave that command in a world that none of us can fathom how big it is. And he gave it 
to Adam and Eve. Two people. Think about the monumental nature of that work. Thousands and thousands of years later, we're still, we're still working on it. Billions and billions of people later. Christians have work that extends into eternity. We're not just talking about thousands and thousands of years here. We're talking about into eternity. The fact that Christians will be united with Christ in heaven for all of eternity is something that we look forward to for encouragement and we realize, yeah, that is, that's never-ending work. It's glorious. We can't ever begin Therefore, the work will never end of of praising God for him saving a people that were sinners like us, that didn't deserve it, but rather deserved death. And so as Paul is in jail, remember what he did when he was in jail in Philippi was sing, right? And so there's this connection, him being in jail now and him being in jail then. He's saying, look, I was singing back then, and what happened? The gates of the jail sprang open, and the jailer was saved. Why was the jailer saved? He was saved partly because Paul wasn't sitting there hopelessly, despondently in prison. He had faith that he was doing the work of God, and that, yes, their suffering that came with it, he knew was going to come with it. Jesus warned him when he made him an apostle. He was like, I'm going to... Oh, actually, it was Ananias. Remember, he, was, he says, sends Ananias, and Ananias is like, Saul, that, that guy, are you sure, God? Because, you know, he's persecuting the church. And Jesus says, I will teach him what he must suffer. For the gospel. And Paul knows. He's, he knows what he must suffer. He's been taught already. Beaten, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, and on and on and on. And why does Paul... write to the Philippians because he doesn't want them to be discouraged that he's in jail. He says, it has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Everybody knows why I'm in jail now. Everybody knows in the Praetorian Guard and everyone else that has anything to do with it And here's the secondary thing that is even more amazing. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. So go back one step further with the Philippian jailer. Why did the Philippian jailer, how did God save the Philippian jailer? Not just by Paul having 
joy and singing while he was in prison, but the fact that he went to prison in the first place. Right? So here, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So there have been people that have been converted because Paul is in prison. And those people in particular have more courage to speak the word of God without fear. If we are going to start doubting, when we are persecuted or when our church leaders are persecuted, then ultimately what we are offended at is the cross. We're suffering the shame of the cross. We ought to rejoice that we have been counted worthy is what we're commanded. Counted worthy to suffer. That's a brilliant thing. And in fact, as we read in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All it takes is desiring to live godly. You don't even have to start. The moment that you desire to live godly, we've got this promise. You will be persecuted. Persecution then leads some to fall away and some to be bold. To have courage. To be more willing to speak with less fear. I want to end next week, Lord willing, we'll go into this discussion of the two kinds of preaching that Paul talks about that come out from this. There's those who are preaching out of love and those who are preaching out of envy and selfish ambition. Whoa. (laughs) Another thing that can make us easily discouraged. But what I want you to leave with today is remembering that God will provide you strength and grace when you walk by faith. Don't be afraid. The unknown is worse than the known. You know how how that goes? You think about how terrible it could be when you get up to the top of the hill and see what's on the other side. It's a burning lake of lava. And you get up there to the top and it's like, oh, it's just a cliff I have to jump off. Okay. <laughs> you see, we, we're good at making things worse than they really are ahead of time. We're good at assuming that God won't be there for us, that he won't give us what we need. 
And so, yeah, prison, I mean, hey, I don't want to go to prison. Do you want to go to prison? Sounds pretty miserable, doesn't it? And yet, once the people saw Paul in prison for the gospel, they were like, oh, hey, is that all there is? Is that all they can do to us? The worst thing they can do is kill us? Let's preach the gospel. They weren't afraid anymore. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Live life. Fulfill your calling. Trusting that all the suffering that comes because of the cross, and it will come to you, that all of it God will cause to bear good fruit in you, in your children, and in the watching world. Let's pray.